everyone, and welcome to this episode of Waynesboro at Work, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs and business leaders to learn about the origin stories of their business, the passion they have for their work, and a little bit of everything in between. I'm really excited to be joined by Shanna Mann, the founder of Central Virginia Prep. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So for people that are not familiar, tell us what Central Virginia Prep is all about. So we're basically warehousing services for the third-party Amazon sellers. All of the people who aren't Amazon selling on Amazon, um, many of them are very small um, mom-and-pop type businesses, and we're their kind of hands and eyes because uh, obviously you can't get a lot of transparency into Amazon's warehouse. Yes, exactly. And so when did the business first start and how did you get involved in that? Um, we started it in 2018. It was just, um, uh, kind of a reaction. My husband and I have been selling on Amazon since 2011 and uh, we were doing used books, but I observed as we kind of met people in the business that everybody had stock that they could be selling on Amazon, <laughs> but they just hadn't gotten around to shipping. <laughs> so I was like, well, I do love an unmet need. <laughs> so I persuaded my husband that we could, we were very organized um, and process oriented people and that this would be easy money. So <laughs> no. all of the best businesses start with that kind of hubris, I think. Yes. So. <laughs> and so based off of that idea, what were some of like the milestones? Like, where did you even start to kind of unravel how you were going to do this? Yeah, there's not as much on the internet as you would think about how to start a warehouse. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically there's a lot of uh, research, talked to my accountant for the most part, um, did some inf like information gathering with the state and uh, just a lot of like arcane resources about how exactly a business like this is even classified and uh, kind of dug into it from that direction. And then because we were already involved in the, you know, third-party seller community, we just kind of let it be known that we would be doing shipping. And because we had uh, a lot of experience already with Amazon Seller Central, which is their seller side portal, uh, which is a really difficult piece of software, mm. <laughs> that was almost kind of our leg up because anybody trying to get into the market, if they're not familiar with Seller Central, will really struggle because it's one of those things that you kind of just have to learn from trial and error. And uh, since we'd already done all that, the hard stuff, basically, it was relatively simple from there to just start adding clients. And we got a few referral partners and it just sort of like was staggering the amount of demand. Wow. So how many sellers um, use your service now? I would say that at any given time, we have 200, 250 active clients. Um, some of them are seasonal. Some people, for instance, uh, since the pandemic, especially, we started building up the storage side of things, just where um, people will import a whole bunch of goods, we'll hold the bulk of it, and then just ship to Amazon as an, on an as-needed as needed basis. And uh, so those people, you know, they only sell, they only ship as frequently as they sell out on Amazon. So right. some people there won't, you know, will only ship once a month or something like that. Other people ship weekly or several times a week. So it just sort of depends on how much volume they have on Amazon and what kinds of things they sell. 
Gotcha. So we're all familiar with, with Amazon, of course. Um, and you said that you actually started by selling used books. Were you um, always kind of an entrepreneur at heart? Like, were you a kid with a lemonade stand or was this a newer development um, when you started selling the used books? Oh no, I was always entrepreneurial. Like where I where I grew up, it was so remote that there was no no employers basically. So you just kind of made money by making yourself useful to other people. I think <laughs> instead of a lemonade stand, I think I sold pies. Um, <laughs> so so it was that that kind of thing where uh, you just uh, um, I've always just found it a lot easier to to sell the things that people are begging you to offer. So um, that that's basically been my strategy over time is just getting better and better at identifying what people are throwing money at to solve. Gotcha. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that um, saying like necessity is the mother of invention or, you know, yeah. When you find an unfulfilled need, but the interesting thing is I think a lot of people might be able to identify like, Oh, this is an unfulfilled need. But why do you think you and you said your husband were able to transition that into actually putting in a plan of action? Because I think a lot of people might, like I said, recognize there's something, but they don't actually end up taking the steps to uh, solve it or go into business to solve it. So what do you think the difference is? I mean, for me, the really fulfilling thing is figuring out actually if there is a business there. Mm -hmm. So I think if you didn't have that curiosity, then yeah, that would probably make it difficult to make the leap. But I've always been really interested in is like, is there enough of a market here? And, you know, over my life, I must have had like a dozen businesses. And often (laughs) the answer is like, no, there's not enough of a market here to make it worthwhile. And uh, initially with my husband, we were working out of our garage. It was really easy because before we started with storage clients, we were flipping the inventory in and out in less than a week. And so uh, we started with a focus on used books, in fact, because they were so compact. The same reason that Jeff Bezos started with books was Mm -hmm. that they're small and easy to ship. And so we were doing the same thing where they would, they would get delivered. We would inspect them, list them, ship them back out and they would turn over. And so we pushed a lot of inventory through without necessarily having to have a large space for it. And we got along quite well like that for several years until um, pandemic hit. We were growing, of course. Uh, we had taken on a, a little part-time help. Uh, we had two part-timers at that time. Um, But when the pandemic hit and Amazon squeezed the storage limits on their warehouses, I was like, I had gone back and forth on whether or not offering more services, including storage was a good idea, because I didn't want to get into the overhead or have to get get into a lease and then not know what was going to happen. But when the pandemic came and Amazon um, constrained their storage so severely, I was like, well, if there was ever a time that this work, it's going to be now. Right. And so we started making moves to expand. And wow. to be honest, I didn't have super high hopes. I was just like, well, this will definitely break even at this point. And like, it was just a waterfall, just wow. a complete torrential downpour of need. So tell me more about what Amazon was doing during the pandemic. You said they were kind of reducing warehouse space. Tell me more oh, about that. Okay. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. That's a little bit of an inside baseball that most people <laughs> don't know about is yes. that when it, so 
the way that Amazon funded their massive distribution system was to build a bunch of warehouses and then rent out the space to the third party sellers. Okay. And they over capacity, right? Like they got so many warehouses that they desperately needed to fill in order to pay their mortgage. Um, so they said they took all comers and they would take as much as you wanted. And then oh, as the years went by, they kind of got a little bit pickier. There was a, a, a penalty fee if your stuff was there for more than 12 months without turnover. Um, then there was a penalty fee at six months. Then they started stacking the penalty fees. Um, but it was still basically for a lot of people, particularly importers, it was still so much easier for them to import directly to Amazon mm -hmm. and just bake the cost of storage into their business. Right. But then the pandemic hit. And I don't know if you remember March 2020, but um, Amazon was completely inundated with orders. Yeah. And so much so that they actually shut down their inbound shipping operations, more or less indefinitely at the time is what they called it, um, because they focused all of their resources on shipping out for this mm. massive surge in demand. Right. And uh, that part didn't worry me because I knew that at any given time, Amazon only had about four weeks worth of inventory in their warehouse of the in-demand goods, like tops. So I knew that they would have to open up or, or their shelves would be bare. But then what they did to control the flood of of backed up inventory now was they said, look, flat rate, like this is how much space you get, no more. And it was based on your um, previous, you know, on various factors, but your previous sales primarily. Right. So that basically for, especially for people who had like one sort of niche type item, which is the vast majority of small brands on Amazon, then they were kind of stuck. They had all of this inventory and Amazon was like, nope, you get this much. <laughs> And uh, they had to do a lot of removals. For the first six months, we did a ton of removal orders, just receiving inventory that Amazon was like, nope, get it out of here. Gotcha. So, uh, so that, was, that was the sort of thing. And then at that point, like everybody had to find other types of storage space in the United States. Like there was just no other way around it. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, all the, all of the topics that have come up about supply chain and I mean everything, but that's really interesting to have that sort of behind the scenes look at what was, what was going on. Cause I know, like you said, they, they were inundated with orders and mm -hmm. yeah. What do you do? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, Sorry. um, talking about the pandemic, you know, there's, um, you know, there's sort of like the logistical side of things, but what was it like for you as an entrepreneur, like having a business and you're going along and then here comes a global pandemic to put a wrench in things? Were there ways that you pivoted? How, how, was, that ex how was that experience for you? I mean, the, back, the backbone of the business is e-commerce. And so e-commerce did extremely well yes. during the pandemic. <laughs> so uh, there was never any fears on that side of things. Luckily, I felt like we were able to kind of keep a lid on the um, labor need, the labor mm. needs uh, for until a, until a vaccine was available. So like my, my, I do have one part-timer who does nothing but customer service for me and she's based in Georgia. So that was never okay. a concern. 
she she works from home. And then um, the other part timer we had is family is a family mm-hmm. member. So uh, we were able to kind of keep a lid on that uh, in within our pod or whatever they were calling it. Yes. So, um, <laughs> so it wasn't until like February, March of 2020 that we finally had to start to hire outside of the family group. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that worked out really well. I, I basically, I mean, we definitely struggled in the fall and winter of 2020, but to keep up with demand, but it was either that or like figure out how we were going to do social distancing in our teeny tiny little warehouse. And like, it was just impossible. So that's how we, we kind of got around. It was just to do without. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, I've talked with so many um, entrepreneurs and business leaders who, whose businesses took a big hit, Mm. you know, during the pandemic. But then, like you said, there's the flip side of that where some businesses kind of exploded um, if they were kind of in that realm of things that people were really needing at that time. So that that's the other side of it as well. So, so you're based in Waynesboro. Why, when you were implementing this idea, was Waynesboro the place that you wanted to have your business? Well, my husband lived here and I moved in with him, uh, back in 2011. So, um, uh, the great thing about working from home is that you can work from home. Yes. Now, Waynesboro <laughs> itself is a great little town because it is, you know, a small town. And uh, I don't offend anybody by that. Because, no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I like I like that about it is that it's such a small town. I, I know my neighbors. My neighbors are related to all the other neighbors. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my husband and I are both kind of transplants, but but that that sort of like everybody knows everybody feel is something that I really find quite attractive and homey. And, uh, and that's, that's been the greatest thing. I also like that it's very much a blue collar type town, like nobody looks down on manual labor that I've seen. Whereas, you know, in some of the larger centers, you get kind of a funny look when people find out that you, you know, handle inventory for a living. Gotcha. So. Yeah. You know, I, I think like you said, you know, um, being in a place where everybody kind of knows everyone and, and, you know, people can be supportive of, of, um, entrepreneurs is a really special thing that Waynesboro definitely has. So I kind of mentioned it before, but, you know, I have this theory that a lot of good ideas die, like, on living room couches and in basements and in garages and, you know, napkins with plans that get thrown away and never actually happen. So I was curious, um, you know, for anybody that has an idea that maybe hasn't quite taken the next step to implement it, what advice would you have for them based on your own experience? I mean, I would say you've got to want to like first and foremost, so for instance, with the third-party sellers on Amazon, uh, we do a lot of trade with used booksellers still, mm-hmm. and used bookselling is billed as one of these um, how to get started on Amazon type businesses. It's very um, low capital to get started, and so low risk, low capital gets a lot of people who are basically just kicking the tires. And the churn of this particular group of customers is unreal. It's like 90 or 95% per year. Um, You know, that 95% of the people that sign up with me won't be still be with me in a year. Um, But I don't think that's a bad thing because I think that everybody has their own aptitudes and, and likes. And so 
you know, they'll try the business and they'll realize that like, whether or not this is a workable business and I have seen it work and my husband and I made money on it for a number of years. Um, you know, if you don't just don't like the work, like it's just not going to work for you, regardless of whether or not it's a good idea on its own. And so I would just encourage people to like, sort of try not to think too hard about it and just try to try it out. And I mean, that's obviously easier if you don't need employees or capital to buy inventory and things like that. But there are usually lots of ways that you can kind of like kick the tires on an idea and um, trial it basically. You know, if find, see if you can find five customers. If you can't five, find five customers, well, it's probably not really a business. But. Gotcha. Well, that's really great advice. Like, like you said, no one can want it more than you if you're going to be the one that is taking the risk and stepping out to, to make your, your dream a reality. Um, so wonderful. So is there anything else you feel like it's important for people to know about central Virginia prep? I mean, one thing that I think is really cool about e-commerce and something that we've got to like do a better job about talking to people about is that, um, Before, if you were like any kind of a craftsman or you had an idea, like there was a whole bunch of steps in the value chain that you had to accomplish. Like you had to do or handle your own manufacturing. You had to arrange for your own shipping. You had to arrange for your own marketing, your own sales channels and distribution channels. You had to find a platform and develop it and pay for advertising to drive it. And then you had to do all of the packaging yourself. And it's really... I don't think most people realize how much of that can be outsourced or productized at this point. And uh, I'm really probably most excited about the people with like indie games or like, you know, like the indie board games or like people with uh, an interesting um, product idea or, or even just, um, I know a young lady who's doing um, like specialty tea towels with um, artistic designs that she that she sources from different artists and creates themed collections and like you can outsource every single part of that uh part of that except for connecting with a community and so everybody knows their own communities and what that community needs and so i feel like if you just focus on finding and filling the need there's a lot more that you can do with your idea than you probably suspect without having to look at all of the moving parts and think about taking them on yourself. You could just be a person that serves a need and, and the rest of the details can be handled by somebody else. Like, so I think a lot of people get intimidated by um, all of the moving parts, especially with product type businesses. But realistically, if you find the community, all of the, that you've done the hard part, Wow, that is really insightful and I think encouraging because I think that is often what happens is you have an idea and you look at it and you go, how am I ever going to get all of these pieces lined up to be able to, you know, accomplish what I want to accomplish, sell the product or offer the service or whatnot. Um, so that's really great advice. There are definitely um, ways that entrepreneurs can be supported. I, I was trying to think about like what makes it a better in Waynesboro. Um, okay. And the thing that, uh, the thing that strikes me about the whole Shenandoah Valley, so I don't know if that's too broad for you. No, the whole Shenandoah Valley is full of a lot of like craftspeople and artisans and uh, 
uh, I think a lot of them, like, you know, you, you find a lady, you know, selling soap or um, pottery or there's handmade notebooks at the, val at the gallery uh, on Main Street. And I look at that and I'm like, you know, I'm sure that they're thinking mostly in terms of like, how much can they make and where can they sell it around here and who can they sell it to? And I'm sure that the, um, pro the problem with having fewer visitors go through in the last 18 months has, has really um, caused revenue issues all over. But like, if you thought a little bit bigger about like what kind of an online uh, store you would get and the distribution there, like, you could potentially have that audience if you were if you were um, able to get to really know the people that you're serving here. Then you can extrapolate it because people are the same all over. You know, once you've got that basic demographic figured out. And and um, so, anyways, I was hoping that I could just encourage people to think a little bit bigger because of how much the whole hard part of product um, distribution has been solved for the most part. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's, um, something that became very, very evident with the, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. And, and I think some people sort of got thrown into the fire of how do I right. transition or how do I at least add an online presence to what I'm already doing? So right. clearly a lot of people found that it was possible. I think if there's any silver lining, part of it, you know, with these past two years, I think people were able to do things they might not have thought they could do. Right. Um, in terms the of their smallest online presence. mom and pop stop pop, mom and pop restaurant suddenly had an order online button. Like, yes, that was just do or die. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and like you said, it, it all comes down to finding community, but that community doesn't just mean the town that you're in or the town your business is in, right. you know, you can essentially, create um an audience of like-minded people or similar people anywhere in the world right um, with your online presence so yeah. yeah that's i'm glad that i'm glad that you um that you talked about that because i think that is definitely an important aspect of things yeah i mean i i guess i get really excited about it because i mean i think part of being an entrepreneur is is knowing how many people else want to be an entrepreneur and just somehow don't quite make it over the hump yeah. and at the same time like I've seen fabulous furniture makers and like all all sorts of food type products from honey to um bloody mary a mix and just all kinds of things and being like you know now with the job that I have it's like oh you could ship that or oh that would be tough to ship but I think you could do it and like yeah. how would you position that and uh and there's really no reason that like so so uh, there's like entitled auctions up in Stewart's draft and they've got a really nice about page. I, I read everybody's about pages <laughs> um, and they've got this about page that talks about how the, the young couple that started it sort of built it up doing this and that and the other thing. And it all comes, all of these stories tend to come down to relationships and like, right. who did you know? Who did you help? What kind of need did you serve? Mm -hmm. And um, the benefit of being in a small community is that you actually do know who you helped, who you knew, right. who you sold to, and what kind of impact you had on them. And then that's what makes it a lot easier to expand to, because right. you have such a powerful and vivid story about who you serve. And so that's why I think Shenandoah Valley is like so well positioned to be able to tell these kinds of marketing stories right. everywhere.
Um, it's just a matter of like, you know, I mean, obviously scaling up is part of it, but just a matter of like, kind of want to basically. Right. Right. So if, if somebody is interested in using your services, how do they find out about you? Well, the website is centralvirginiaprep.com. And um, like, for instance, at the moment, my 2022 goal is right now we only ship to Amazon. So the Amazon can ship direct with customers. But in 2022, I really wanted to dive into direct to consumer fulfillment so that I can get these, these smaller artisans are all going to be on Shopify, not Amazon, because Amazon, interestingly enough, well, I'm sure everybody's heard what an 800 pound gorilla they are, but for people who sell on Amazon, when the, the, the end goal of every Amazon brand is to escape the massive gravity well that Amazon is. Mm. And um, if they do that and they get on these other things like walmart.com, Shopify, eBay, sometimes Etsy, depending on what they sell, if they sell on all of those platforms, all of them together only equal at most 20% of what they sell on Amazon. Mm. Now that's a huge market share. But if you go the other direction for these little independent artisans, like the lady with the tea towels, the guy with the, um, with the Bloody Mary juice, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're selling on Shopify and that's 100% of their revenue, but they can expand it if their distribution is better. So mm-hmm. if they're in their own garage, shipping their own boxes, hauling them up to the UPS store by themselves, like there's only so many you can do with you before you burn right. out. <laughs> right. So that's the part where we want to be able to take that off their hands when they get to like a hundred orders a month or something, you know, if we can take that off their hands, um, with, uh, our business and help them be able to take that time back to reinvest into their business, then, then, then I, I think we'll see a lot of traction in helping people grow. And then if they ever want to go onto Amazon, more power to them, we'll help them out. But I want to see more of the more artisanal end of e-commerce really get their feet under them and it's possible now with how productized these services are right right that's a good point um so if somebody wants to use your services what like cost breakdown are they or investment are they looking in to use you instead of like you said sending these out themselves from their garage well, we haven't finalized it yet. So um, <laughs> the way that it's looking at is like from $2 to $250, uh, sorry, <laughs> that didn't even come out, from 2 to 250 for the actual handling, plus okay. the shipping, plus the box costs. And that kind of has to be that way because, you know, it could be any size. It doesn't make sense. But what we really want to do is like help the little brands find like you know, this is the Instagram world. We just live in it. So like yes. <laughs> if you've got an indie brand, you've kind of got to have a good unboxing experience. Right. So we want to help them with like a um, product, um, not product designer, a um, packaging designer to help them kind of try to figure out the best way to package their goods. And uh, you can get like custom inserts so that things don't roll around in the box mm-hmm. instead of using crushed paper or bubbles or whatever. You can get, you know, your own cartons that have, colored even colored printing on them you know and they or they could be shiny like a shoebox you know so it kind of depends on what you're willing to invest but um there's also like it's not just about making it pretty although that's part of it because it's your brand but you can also do it so that like for instance uh if you need to ship something that's under 16 ounces 
uh, in order to get first class shipping, which is much cheaper than package shipping on um, at, in most shipping carriers, but USPS is the one I'm thinking of. And an ordinary carton weighs three ounces. Well, maybe we can work with a package designer and find a carton or develop a carton, a custom carton for you that only weighs two ounces that gets mm. you under that. And it might cost you 30 cents to extra to get that custom carton, but you're saving a dollar 15 on your shipping. Nice. So that's the kind of thing that I find super, super interesting. Yes. So is that something you're doing now or is that a goal? So that's a goal. Currently what I'm doing is for the guys who are importing, they're, they're having their goods manufactured overseas and they're importing. I'm working with some of my clients right now to like talk about what can we do with your packaging to avoid having shipping damage. And here are the kinds of things that cause shipping damage. This is the type of damage that we see with this type of material. Um, and this is more for the higher end goods. This is for the guys who get, who make an item and then they put it in a really nice little gift box because that's the only way currently around how crappy Amazon ships stuff. Mm. You know how it's rattling around in this huge carton <laughs> yes. and there's no bubbles right. <laughs> and there's hardly any tape. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and you open it up and you're like, oh, fine, I'm not going to bother to return this. So these guys have higher end items and they'll usually be in some sort of a gift box and some gift boxes, not all, not all retail packaging is created equal, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so this fall, we've had a real problem with crush damage for gift mm -hmm. boxes um, because uh, the sheer volume trying to go through the pipeline from UPS you know, domestically or from the dock onto the trucks, yes. um, the weight of the packages will crush down the sides of the cartons. Yeah. Not much. Um, the cartons, the shipping cartons themselves will look fine, but the internal gift boxes will have these little seams where the center of them has collapsed. Mm, right. So we're basically working with their manufacturers to try and like provide feedback on the kinds of damage that we're seeing so that we can engineer a better box back in China. Interesting. So that's been super duper fun. Yes, that does sound fun. Yeah. There's a lot that goes into the shipping part of things that I think, you know, we don't always, always think about, but what a great, what a great, you know, resource you are to have, you know, for somebody to link up with, to get advice on all of that. Because like you said, you know, your package can look great going out the door, but if it does not arrive, to right. the person looking great doesn't doesn't yeah. really cut it so well and that's one thing that we tell our clients because so for instance um we're gonna have to increase the prices that'll be done by the time this airs but um box costs have increased 40 percent this year wow and pallet costs have increased just about 50 percent this year depending on how good the pallets you want them to be are wow. and amazon insists on having very nice pallets <laughs> um amazon's got standards Dan. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> um, and so like, and also we, we splurge on really good reinforced tape, like fiberglass reinforced tape. And this is for one single reason, which is that Amazon can min max the quality of their boxes and their tape and just assume that if they lose 3% of shipments due to loss or damage, then that's fine. They've just baked that into the cost, right. you know, the cost of the boxes versus the labor and materials that it would take to actually reduce that number of loss. Right. 
But because our customers are all extremely small businesses, they cannot afford that amount of loss. And right. so we made a business's decision basically to use heavy duty cartons and reinforced tape. Because when a customer that only ships 20 boxes a month loses one box out of their inventory, like that's a significant blow. Yes, absolutely. So, so yeah, it's just one of those things that people are like, well, why does this box cost so much? And it's like, it's a whole thing. Okay. Just trust me. <laughs> yes. Like, like a lot of other things, things have gone up <laughs> in price for sure. Yeah. You know, that's, that is, um, that's a really good point too, because I think sometimes, you know, it's sort of like, okay, I've created this thing and it's shipping out. Okay. That's it. Like that's, that's all I need to be worried about. But <laughs> the transit part of it is, yes. is huge. And, um, yeah. So, you know, and like we see just reinforced over and over again, the fact that, you know, a lot of times there's a big leap between being a small, you know, seller of items up against the behemoth of Amazon and getting involved in that system. So it's really nice to hear there's somebody looking out on the shipping side of things for the people that, like you said, if they ship out 20 orders and two of them are damaged, that's a big hit for them. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Um, I really enjoyed learning more about central Virginia prep and getting some inside info about Amazon. You know, basically I'm a consumer. I go in, I shop, I get the things, but I'm not always sure what's happening behind the scenes. So that was really, really interesting. Thank you so much. And for anybody watching, if you want to learn more about Waynesboro entrepreneurs, please visit waynesborobusiness.com or growwaynesboro.com. And make sure that you check out our YouTube channel on at Visit Waynesboro. You can also um, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. You can read the blog post about this episode on growwaynesboro.com as well. Thank you so much for watching. Enjoy and be well.